0: living through a rapid acceleration in AI capabilities. A development that feels as scary as it is stunning, as we witness our new chatbot overlords confidently passing exams, writing poems, and even hiring human workers to do their bidding. Watching all this unfold has prompted speculation that millions of jobs are about to be automated out of existence, with our skilled labour being replaced by writing assistants like ChatGPT, image-making robots like Midjourney, and our abilities to plan being replaced by automated agents, like AutoGPT. At the end of 2020, Navara Media's James Butler was joined by writer and researcher Aaron Benenev, author of Automation and the Future of Work, for an episode of Navara FM that anticipated the current wave of AI disruption, but also placed it in the context of a centuries old history of technological advances that have reshaped the workplace over and over again. In this episode, James and Aaron get to grips with the spectre of automation, discussing the strange gap between labour-saving technology and increased productivity, visions of utopia beyond work, and why overwork and underemployment can coexist so easily under the current economic system. We've eliminated hunger. want, The need for possessions. We've grown out of our infancy.
1: And some someone's got to
0: find the middle way, the the balance between between progress and just the dignity of life. Back to work and docu wages People are no longer obsessed with the accumulation of
1: things. Captain Picard there offering a pointed rejoinder to capitalist psychology. You're listening to Navarre FM on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest radio station. I'm James Butler. The robots are coming, in fact, they've already arrived, doom-laden headlines and starry-eyed futurist tracts alike herald the world that those robots are supposed to inaugurate. In fact, if there's one thing that unites the silicon capitalists and platform parasites with luxury communists and left accelerationists, it's this fundamental belief that automation is about to usher in a profound transformation to the way we work. And that technological change is where our critical and political energies should be focused But what if that's wrong? What if there are other structural factors which are changing the way that we work? Is automation enough to account for the vast chunk of humanity increasingly not quite unemployed, but only barely employed? If post-scarcity is really possible, or if it's here already but unevenly distributed, can we really expect the robots to bring it about for all of us? And will post-scarcity really mean post-work? This week, a polemic which takes on all those questions and more.
2: I'm Aaron Beninoff. I'm a researcher at Humboldt University, and I just wrote a book called Automation and the Future of Work, which came out with Verso Books.
1: The book comes from this engagement with the work of of automation theorists, and your critique is a substantive and it's an engaged uh, critique and uh, you know an engagement with their work. Now, automation theory obviously has a lot of variants, but so I think the way into this is let me try a kind of sketch, and then we can kind of pick it apart. So. The claim goes fundamentally that over a particular time period, often the last few decades, sometimes just the past few years, the the capacity to automate work, you know, and work of all kinds, but especially um, industrial manufacturing work, that that's undergone a kind of qualitative leap. So we've we've either seen or we're seeing the results of that in uh, ever more stuff, um, a growing economy, and uh, ever fewer and fewer jobs. Now, on top of that, you have the advent of computer technologies, which mean that uh, many other kinds of labour, so uh, work from kind of care work through to say uh, solicitors' work, like legal action, uh, kind of form filling stuff like that, that will also become increasingly automated. So, so you see these like a, a vast swathe of work either kind of uh, partly or totally. Subsumed into the robots. So, this then for these theorists presents a kind of political problem uh, to which we can respond in various ways, riding the tech tiger all the way through to fully automated luxury communism, as one of my colleagues uh, has advocated, uh, or repurposing technology in one way or another, or like uh, supporting the increasing mass of, of unemployed or underemployed people with a universal basic income and so on. And we can come on to talk a bit about the political program and the way in that arises from the analysis uh, in a bit but but how about that sketch what's the problem with it
2: well i think a lot of the evidence that people point to when they tell a story like that about automation is that they look at the technologies primarily right and they say look at you know computers advanced computing machine learning industrial robotics and they say, look at these technologies, they're really, they really seem like they're doing something incredible that we've thought about, dreamed about in utopias and science fiction, um, and now they're becoming a reality. Um, and I think, you know, when you look at these technologies, it, it's pretty easy to be impressed. Uh, for me, um, thinking about, you know, the new, um, not just Google Translate, but these new kind of neural network uh, translator apps that are so good at producing natural language from uh, translating it from one language to another. It really seems like some really, yeah, we live in a time of apparently brilliant technologies. The issue is that when you, when you switch from looking from a technological perspective to an economic one, um, the realities just look quite different. So, um, and, and automation theorists will present this as a kind of puzzle, but one which doesn't really deter them Uh, in their analysis, which is just that um, you would expect that if these brilliant technologies were being implemented and were having these kind of automating effects, that there would be a really dramatic leap in labor productivity. And I often point out that can be a little confusing for people because it seems like why would labor be getting more productive if machines are replacing them, right? But... In fact, the way labor productivity is calculated is it's just output per hour of work. It doesn't try to look at specifically what workers are adding. It's just total output divided by, um, um, yeah, number of hours worked. And so in, that, in those metrics, you just don't see that happening. And it's not that it's hidden. It's not that it's happening in some sectors really at an amazing pace and other sectors are absorbing this kind of surplus labor. Um, even in industry, which would be the sector you'd think would be the most um, automating and the most, you know, susceptible to industrial robots and all different kinds of internet of things type developments, even there, you see a pretty dramatic slowdown in rates of productivity growth. So it just isn't happening. And, um, there's a lot of other kind of supporting evidence for that as well.
1: So, so about this phenomenon then, like, I, you know, I suppose because so, so it's often, and I think it's, it's, it's there in your book, uh, critics of of automation theorists will point to you know there are historical waves of automation and obviously the, these kind of uh, fantasies or, or visions or even sort of political projects about the future in which the, the kind of vast or total reduction of work uh, lays the way either for a kind of apocalyptic or uh, indeed uh, utopian society. I mean the, the, this this is a vision that's been around for ages, right? And it's not just like back to say, like Keynes, who who talks about reducing the working week. But you know, you go further back, and I think you cite some of the kind of very early, uh, sort, of, sort of mid to late eighteenth century writers on this stuff. You know, and and you know, it's there in Karl Marx as well, who's very interested in these kind of cyclopean machines and things like that. So is there, you know, I guess the, I guess the thing that that puzzles me, and I don't know whether you have a sense of this, is the degree to which there is. Oh, a qualitative change in the kind of automation uh, that we're seeing uh, over the past few decades and whether, whether, that, you know, whether it's worth thinking of it in a different way to the kind of waves of automation that have preceded it?
2: Well, I think that's a really interesting question. I think that each time there's a wave of automation, you see people predicting that, um, the, that really this leap is the one that's going to take us beyond the world of work. And it's only as the wave starts to kind of show its limits that um, people realize it It turns out that remaining space that looks so small between, you know, the Cycloptian steam powered um, machine and a fully automated industrial worker, it just turns out to be a lot larger than people at first imagine. And I think we're going to basically um, see that again. Now, that isn't to say that it won't ever happen. It's totally plausible that in the 21st century, some kind of breakthroughs will take place that will make work um, widely unnecessary. It's just that we're not there yet. But I should say that because you mentioned the economists who are always criticizing these automation theorists who say, well, you know, as many jobs are, as are destroyed, there are new jobs created. That's where I really disagree with the economists because they make it seem like there's a kind of automatic process or semi-automatic or at least dependable process by which jobs that are lost are always somehow replaced in the economy. Um, And that's just simply not true. Uh, We've lived through a very long period of time. The the example I always point to around the world is uh, the industrialization of agriculture, this kind of nitrogen-fueled rather than silicon-fueled capitalism, which has dramatically changed agricultural markets um, reduced prices very significantly for all kinds of agricultural products, and then for other ones, um, substituted them with kinds of plastics and synthetics and so on. And the result of this has been an incredible exit from agriculture, making it incredibly difficult for people to live via agricultural you know, farming and so on. Um, and yet, uh, in places like India, it's not the case that Jobs are just being created for these people whose jobs are, are being lost or whose sort of livelihoods are being taken away from them um, through this process. There's nothing automatic about the labor market. And we just see that not only in the case of agriculture, but also deindustrialization. In essence, my claim is that the economy just isn't growing quickly enough to create jobs for the people who are losing their jobs. It's not that jobs are being lost at a a particularly rapid pace, which is what the automation theorists claim. It's that jobs are being created at an incredibly slow pace because the economy is stagnating. And that's something that some economists do say, but there's a problematic kind of, I guess what I'm pointing out is a tension between the claim that jobs are always created whenever jobs are destroyed and the insight that the economy has been stagnating, i.e., it isn't creating jobs for people who are losing them or who are just now entering the labor market.
1: I think we should come on to talk about the, those two kind of the, the, those those twin problems, those linked twin problems, which are uh, the question of productivity and the question of stagnation. Um, but I just just before we do, I, I just think it would be worth saying, you, you know, uh, could you just give us like maybe an account? And I think it's probably useful for our audience to hear this, like just an account of the ways in which automation is useful to the capitalist side of the equation um, in in labor relations? Because I think it's important to kind of get it kind of concrete about why automation is attractive. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, there, it's not just a matter of automation, but a whole range of technological changes that are, of course, very useful to employers. Uh, And a lot of those changes really do, um, you know, reduce the amount of work that has to be done. They make labor more efficient. Um, a big debate in the automation literature, which I think is you know, clarifying itself for the last few years, is that a lot of these automating technologies aren't really uh, getting rid of job categories. They're just changing them. So some of the tasks that workers do are going to be taken over by machines, um, but other ones will remain. Um, people will be working with more computers and digital technologies. But the way that those changes are going to be implemented in the world we live in is that just as in the past, employers are gonna select technological changes or they're gonna invest in research and development and changes that tend to make it harder for workers to organize themselves, to cooperate with one another, and to pose a threat right, to their employers at work. And so you know, everyone was talking about uh, Amazon warehouses being this place where, wow, they've really industrialized the warehouse process uh, and they're using more and more machines. But at the same time, um, Amazon is investing a huge amount of research and development uh, money in um, being able to surveil and watch their workers, right? And and make sure that they're they're both working as hard as possible, as intensely as possible, and that they're not meeting secretly uh, to try to unionize. So that's a really, one should be very careful to not adopt the kind of position that thinks that technology is just there to be discovered and it just develops neutrally um, forward. And we can just view technological progress over a long period of time as just, you know, a series of discoveries of benefits to humanity. Many of the ways that technologies will be implemented and are already being implemented are going to benefit employers and make it harder for workers to organize.
1: Right, absolutely, and this is one of the things I think that comes across very strongly in your work, which is that you know technologies encode social relations, right? I mean, they they don't just exist um, outside of the the world in which they're discovered and the uses to which they're put. Anyone who has encountered the labour market, probably in the course of the past decade, uh, at least, unless they're very fortunate, they're going to encounter the spectre of uh, less of unemployment, although it's a real, real thing, and I think especially a concern, obviously. Um, with the COVID-19 recession, uh, which I think is probably well underway at the moment. Uh, But the spectre of underemployment seems to me to be a a far more consistent phenomenon uh, over the course of the past decade, whichever phase the labour market is is in, whichever phase the economy is in uh, at that time. And this kind of decreasing demand for labour is central to your account of where we are at the moment. Why is it so central? What effects does it have?
2: So uh, it's very important to, to understand that unemployment is a, a condition that you know, workers find themselves in in the course of the normal business cycle, boom-bust cycle. And for anyone under 40 um, today, or maybe you know 50 or something, for whom early years of their, um, their uh, working lives, we've seen two so-called once-in-a-lifetime economic recessions that brought with them very large increases in unemployment. And the effects of um, that unemployment on people's lifetime earnings will be severe, and that's something that should enrage people, I think, because uh, bouts of unemployment early on in your um, in your working career have have lasting effects on your uh, lifetime earnings, and that's something that again should make people very upset. Um, but what we've seen uh, after the last crisis, and what we'll see again. Um, after this one, um, is that people will eventually be absorbed into the labor market. A big change that's happened in the way that welfare states are organized over the last 30 or 40 years is that in the past, people had more access to unemployment insurance benefits. Uh, And unemployment insurance benefits were really designed to carry people over through brief periods of recession on the idea that economies run at high steam and then drop off for a year or so and then return to running at high steam. When that stopped happening uh, increasingly in the 1970s and workers remaining unemployed for a longer period of time, governments took steps that kind of adapted the Swedish policy of active labor market uh, interventions to try to force people back into the labor market or push them actively back into the labor market. Um, of course, unlike in, say, Sweden and Denmark, Most countries have adopted these active labor market policies without very much assistance, actually, real help to workers to find jobs. So it looks more like, you know, being pushed out um, of the unemployment rolls rather than being kind of drawn in. But in any case, the result of this is that more and more workers are finding work under very difficult conditions. I use the term underemployment. There's really no good word for it. Because the whole point is that unemployment was a sort of normal way to be a worker without a job. It was an attempt to normalize the experience of being without a job and give workers a little more security. As states have pulled back from that kind of relationship to worklessness, what we've seen proliferate are a variety of different forms of what I call underemployment. But again, it's like some people who are underemployed are underemployed because they're earning low wages, but they're actually working way more than a normal work week, right? So overwork and underemployment can really go together. Um, And part of my argument is just that this experience of underemployment, whether you have skills that you aren't able to use, whether you uh, lost a job that paid you more in the past and now you're working for less money, um, whether you are underemployed in terms of time, or access to benefits and so on; these are all ways that um, workers have to give something up to to get a job in a market that isn't really um, in where their labor is not in high demand.
1: I mean, there's something so striking about about your account here, which is which is that it reminds me so much of you know the various kind of very long passages in in Capital, Volume One, and in lots of Marx's journalistic writing, where he's kind of very much exploring these these kind of conditions in in which you know. We, we, you know which which feel much much more familiar in the labor market now uh, than they would have done I think if you were reading them 30 40 50 years ago um, you know it's it's by no means uh, exactly the same but those experiences seem to me certainly to to at least rhyme um i I wonder if you have a sense you know in in the way of the, the, these things have changed um, you know the kind of jobs that People are being kind of th- when you know after they've been thrown off one way and come back into those jobs seem to me to be very often service sector jobs. You know, what is the importance of the service sector in in your account?
2: Well, let me let me say first, I think that that um, that um, analogy to how things were in the mid to late nineteenth century is really important, and for me, even uh, Engels's writings on the condition of the working class in England and the kind of um, Owenite journalism that he's actually drawing from there and that Marx is systematizing, that's all very important. Uh, In the late 19th, early 20th century, we also had figures like, um, you know, really kind of um, questionable figures like Charles Booth and uh, William Beveridge doing studies of underemployment in London that uh, that I think are, are quite interesting. And then the major jobs people were working in were sort of like Sweated industries, of course, uh, dock labor was was the quintessential form of casual employment back then. And now I think, as you as you say, a lot of the kind of work people are getting, maybe the quintessential form today would be a kind of platform worker, right? A delivery driver or something like that. Um, but, but more broadly, a whole set of uh, low wage um, service work. And one thing I point out in my book is that this is true not only in a country like the UK, it's also true... Uh, around the world, in, in many countries in the world, um, if you look at Brazil or Iran or um, even China, you know, more and more people are finding jobs in these low wage or low return service sectors. The reason why that's so important is because, I mean, in brief, services, uh, the, the price to the final consumer Largely consists of the wage that workers are paid for doing the service. So there isn't as much like fixed capital in the price. Um, and that means that uh, you can significantly affect the, the, the price that the final consumer is paying by paying those workers less um, and this is really important in, say, informal sector markets in India and around the world, where workers just try to reduce their incomes as much as possible, right, uh, in order to make space for them in the labor market. That's also true um, in a country like the UK, where uh, workers are taking hits to their uh, incomes in order to kind of open up space in the labor market. And very large companies depend on workers um, being forced to exploit themselves in this way or or being open to this kind of super exploitation in order for jobs to be created.
1: It's interesting to hear you kind of raise the kind of global context there because I you know it's it's quite hard to know certainly from from my perspective is you know what this phenomenon looks like you know in Shenzhen, Gogaon, even Lagos for instance, you know I, mean, I just wonder if you have a, a sense you know we have to think of capitalism as a global system, and yet we also know that the way it operates, you know, depends on variegated territory. That depends on kind of these differing legal regimes um, by which it has managed historically to undertake these various fixes, like spatial fixes, you know, outsourcing stuff like that. Um, I, I wonder if you, if you, if you have a sense of how important that sort of global variegation of of uh, economic regimes is to the way that capitalism is currently managing uh, that that kind of you know the 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 its overcapacity.
2: Yeah, I well, that's uh, the overcapacity issue brings in another dimension to it, right? I think it's really important for people to know that globally we live in an era. It's very hard to exactly pinpoint this for a variety of statistical measurement uh, reasons. But we live at a time where the whole world is at a turning point. Roughly half of the world's population, uh, sorry, the world's workforce is now employed in services. And for me, you know, thinking about this, I often go back to uh, a thinker who had a huge influence on me, uh, Mike Davis, his book Planet of Slums. And the original article opens up with this kind of depiction of the turning point right at which the world becomes 50 percent urban and you don't know which figure it is you know that 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 marks this global turning point but we live in that exact same moment for the global transition to a majority services economy um and the reason why that's important is i think that often when we think of left-wing global analyses they focus on the global factory and that's a that's a crucial part of the story, just as you said, capital spatial fix, essentially in an era in which um, multinational corporations faced heightened competition from one another across the advanced industrial countries. So here we're talking about companies in the US, Germany and Japan and other European countries um, competing with one another in the world market. And especially in the higher income or higher wage countries like the US, thinking about the need to go global, right, to find low wage workers somewhere in the world that you can use to do the kind of difficult assembly operations or the, high, the sort of um, labor-intensive assembly operations to support their their competition globally. So you had this whole global spatial fix, the development of global supply chains, reaching out all over the world, scouring the earth for low wage workers to do the kind of dirty work of um, these these multinationals. But in sum. That represents a small portion of the global labor force. And precisely, um, you know, U.S. companies went to places like first South Korea and Taiwan and then kind of all down the chain to uh, through Thailand and Malaysia and and uh, China, Vietnam, India, looking for places where there was a massive oversupply of labor. Right. Because that's fundamental to how they um, they discipline their workers and achieve persistently low wages over the over the long period of time where these factories and assembly operations are operating. So there were always many more workers on the outside of those factory gates, right, struggling, looking for work. That was fundamental to that project. And so around the world, that focus, I think, on the global factory, crucially important for thinking about what happened to capitalism, sometimes diverted our gaze from what turns out to be at least a quantitatively larger story of the growth of this uh, informal and largely service-based global economy.
1: So I understand why why this account matters in terms of return to capital, right? Um, I could, As you're saying about the sort of wage factor of, of, of these service jobs. And I understand why historically, the left's attention has often been on the global factory has often been on the kind of industrial workplace, the kind of classic industrial workplace. And that's partly to do with questions of agency onto which I think we should come in a bit, but this, this tipping point in terms of service jobs, why, why is it so crucial? I mean, you know, I, I can, I can, see, I can see, you know, how, how it might affect your account of agency. I can see how, for instance, you know, for instance, so the, the classic Bev Silver account of, Automobile manufacturing, where it sort of bounces around the world until, in each location, there's an upsurge of struggle. Then it finds a new space to exploit and eventually ends up back in Detroit in a lights out factory with like maybe one worker (laughs) where there had been two hundred before. Like that's an that's obviously quite a compelling account. Uh, it, It seems to me the territory of services is much much harder to find a handle on about both why it has, you know, why it's important in the story of global capitalism, but also, you know, why it's important for us in terms of how to act?
2: You know, that's a really great question that I think gets at maybe the whole thing in a way, because I don't think that it is, I don't think that this transition is very functional for capital. And I I guess that that's part of my larger sort of critique or difference from some other kind of left or Marxist theorists is that I think that the global, what I used to call and still call, um, though I have a more developed account, the global surplus population. I don't think that it's, it's, it's so large that to claim that it's functional for capital is just, you know, it it doesn't make any sense. There's just so many people, um, who are, who are living on the edge and who are working in these very low productivity jobs. Um, And many of them are self-employed to to think that that capital needs this body to 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 hold down wages. It's just far too large to fulfill that functional role. And for me, I think when you go back and read volume one of Capital, you really see that that that's what Marx expected. He thought that the surplus population would far outgrow its usefulness. It, it, It starts off as something useful for capitalism. But over time, it outgrows that function. And so this isn't just a story about what's good for capital. It's actually, in my mind, a story about what I think of, and I I think this is obviously provocative or something that one could debate quite rightly, but I think that it it marks a transition to a late form of capitalism in which the system, because productivity growth rates are low in, in services for the most part, because services are difficult to mechanize and industrialize, there are of course exceptions to that. You know, When you look at mcdonald's or when you look at uh, an amazon warehouse they look highly industrialized um, because they represent one you know a sector of the services that are capable of this kind of transformation but many services aren't and what that suggests is a long-term slowdown in the growth rate of the system this isn't necessarily a problem for the ultra wealthy because um, it also means that workers are uh, much less well off have much lower bargaining power Um, And even though there's less growth to go around, more of that growth is ending up in the pockets of the rich. So, you know, a a fall in the profit rate is compensated by a rise in the profit share, to use that kind of technical language. But the ultimate result of this is that um, it it means that the system is not integrating workers in the same way and that it's, it's very difficult for the system to not generate rising inequality, social strife and conflict.
1: Right, I mean, the, it's the, the that question of integration. I think uh, is you know it's something that I think has has characterized or has kind of lurked around the edges of of your work certainly, and and certainly the work that you were involved in uh, in in the Endnotes Collective. I mean, I, I if it, I I mean I was about to say it feels like a long time. It is now a long time since I read. I think it's Volume Two, or Volume Three of the the Endnotes work, which uh, uh, features these these questions about. The way in which workers are integrated into capitalism, and the question of what happens in terms of uh, response, and whether that's kind of a, a an avowed, you know, explicitly political response, or whether it's kind of low-level sabotage, or whether it's kind of you know a rising inclination to uh, explosions of disorder, um, it, it does seem to me that this this is this remains and has remained over the course of the past decade that, like in some ways, the central political question. Of the time, um, and one of the things I think that has characterised, I think certainly political discourse over the course of the past couple of years, but it's been visible there. I think since the global financial crisis is the question of billionaires, right? And 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 so this seems to me to be part of that question of where the capital that isn't moving is, uh, and. Partly, it's just static, but it, it surely can't be accounted for just by the existence of these individual ultra wealthy types, is it? You know, it, is it just that there's an enormous amount of of capital hoarded by individuals, or is there a general kind of capitalist strike on investment in circulation? I mean, I, I, I my sense here is that they, you know, it feels like it feels like there is an instinctive desire. On the part of people exploring these issues, to say that there is a blockage somewhere, that something has been hoarded somewhere, and that if it were unblocked, then things might be a little better. That doesn't seem to me necessarily true, but I'd I'd like to put my finger on why.
2: Yeah, I think that's very interesting because I, I think that there are a number of phenomena that all go together, in which you'll find people suggesting that any one of them is sort of the core driving phenomena. So. There's, there's the thing that I emphasize, which is, uh, which is capitalist economic stagnation, which I say has a structural cause. It's, it's not something that is merely a demand issue. And we can talk about that. But before we do, I think it's important to see that um, other features that have come with stagnation include a kind of increasing monopoly character to the system. Uh, the fact that you know, the remaining firms that do well in this environment tend to be very large, have massive uh, economies of scale, there's the fact that it's accompanied by rising inequality, so that more and more of the income growth that's generated is growing to the rich, and within the rich, the very rich, and within the very rich, the very, very rich, right? So there's a kind of not just concentration of business capital IE monopolies, but concentrations of income running all the way up the scale. Um, and then you know, in, in addition to that, There's the financialization of the system, right? The fact that more and more capital appears as this kind of financial capital uh, scouring the globe um, and refusing to uh, park itself somewhere in long term fixed investments. We've seen a really dramatic fall in long term interest rates and a kind of bottoming out of interest rates in some countries. So, you know, looking at all these phenomena, you could, you could kind of pick any one of them to be your star character, right? And build the narrative around that. And I think you see that um, from different kinds of political perspectives. I think that in a way, you know, and I, I would want to explore this more. I think it's a very difficult question. Um, there's a very strong Keynesian account to be made. And I've had a lot of conversations with people who find this appealing who say, look, you know, there's just so much money. First of all, it should be said, the neoliberal perspective was that deregulating and freeing up capital and transferring money to shareholders, um, obliterating old and useless uh, kind of, you know, firms that are just being protected by governments, that freeing up all of this um, uh, capital will result in amazing new dynamic period of, of growth. And and of course, that hasn't happened. Right. So um, the idea of trickle down economics or whatever, all of that turned out to be even more and more obviously a failure to the broader public. And that means that there's really no economic justification for having so much wealth concentration. Right. If, if these people are not going to use the wealth to invest it and, you know, kind of expand the economy for everyone, then it's, it's just uh, it's just thievery. So um, the idea of these kind of radical Keynesians, which I think is very important and interesting new-ish phenomenon over the past 10 years, is to say, look, we have to take this money and either force these people to invest or confiscate the money from them and then invest it ourselves. And the idea there is that there isn't, depending on the version they're either they're, there isn't so much of a structural impediment to growth. There's really just the fact that for some reason, these people are unwilling to part with their money. Um, and so obviously there is a lot that remains to be done. There's a lot of, you know, schools to be built, people to be fed. I mean, my account isn't one that says, oh, we've built everything we need to build, um, we're done. Uh, but my account is one in which because the industrial sector has been oversupplied and overcapacitated for so long. Um, Getting that sector up and running again is incredibly difficult because basically firms know that their lines are, for the most part, already oversupplied, already saturated, already mature, so that the uh, inducements to invest only last as long as the stimulus. There's no reason to be building factories Um, in these advanced capitalist countries. Uh, The the reason to build them would only last as long as the stimulus. And that means that capitalists are very reticent to invest. Meanwhile, the service sector is just not really a growth sector. Most of the uh, industries that are there grow very slowly, especially when the rest of the economy is stagnating. So I think in some way, the people who are saying we could unblock, as you said, the system and force investment to happen they've increasingly moved themselves toward a very radical position that this would have to be done by the state directly, right? That this could only happen if the profitability motive were jettisoned and if we had a huge amount of investment happening outside of uh, private control. But that suggests a real, real strong limit for capitalism, at least in our era. Um, And at that point, my criticism has a lot more to do with uh, how they envision this happening and, you know, whether it a, has a democratic character and 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 how much further, I guess, we could go.
1: I just to just I think we should just clarify for listeners, we, you mentioned that overcapacity and I've mentioned overcapacity as well. I've realized we haven't actually defined it, which is something that we should do. You've just like just a capsule part, this is also a, a, a quite an important part of your account. Um, so like just just a little capsule summary of overcapacity would be helpful. Yeah.
2: I mean, in the past, very few countries industrialized, and those countries that did industrialize really benefited from it, generated very high rates of growth. Um, and, you know, most countries were prevented from doing it or were actively de-industrialized by colonialism and imperialism. And after World War II, um, you had a very unique situation facing the kind of threat of Soviet socialism, facing the catastrophe of 30 years of war, uh, a new kind of program emerged to industrialize the world with the idea that this would generate long-term peace. The U.S. Um, not only kind of supported this, but among its, you know, its, its, its great competitors, Germany and Japan, who had just defeated in war, it gave them a lot of uh, incentives and boosts and technology transfers to develop. And after World War II, we just saw the, the most incredible period of uh, the build-out of industrial capacity across the world. And this didn't only reach to um, the highly uh, the advanced capitalist countries. It also came to all of these developing countries all over the world um, through import substitution industrialization and then later export-oriented industrialization, which set up the basis for the buildup of all of these global supply chains. And the result, after... A relatively short period of time in the post-war period was this massive uh, growth of industrial capacity hit its limits and resulted in a situation in which markets were increasingly oversupplied, uh, firms were less and less incentivized to invest and develop their industry because of that oversupply, and you kind of had the system um, slowing down decade by decade over a very long period of time and becoming less dynamic. And even though that was happening, it still made sense for uh, low-cost suppliers in a range of developing countries to try to break into industry and make any space that they could for themselves in industrial supply chains because the situation, as I kind of mentioned earlier in the, in the program, um, was even worse in agriculture. So there was a huge amount of pressure to enter industrial markets throughout this whole period. And the result has been a systemic slowdown or, or, or driving down of industrial dynamism and an end, as I say, to the uh, global industrial growth engine that's kind of left capitalism relatively rudderless, um, marking it by underemployment, rising inequality, and uh, yeah, the, and, and, and increasing social strife and crisis, Yeah.
1: So obviously, I mean, this is this is one of the contexts in which uh, uh, I, I think we should move to to effectively, like the 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 kind of political dimension uh, of your account, which is, you know, so you, I was very impressed by the sort of strong speculative vein or the strong engagement with the speculative that marked the book. It wasn't something that I expected actually, um, and and so you know, I I was impressed by your openness, thing like, even if it was a kind of. Qualified defence of the need for the kind of visions that that are advocated by automation theorists. Now, very often, you know, the political visionary, the, the political vision of, of this stuff, it you know ends up positing kind of a universal basic income or something similar to that, probably to kind of both offer security and stimulate. Demand. I think we've we've seen from your account some of the reasons that that might actually be a problem. Um, but but what do you make of, of of these visions? You know, in terms in terms of their political utility. Um, you, you know, you have a reasonably strong defence of them. Uh, you know, that's not necessarily a given in various parts of the Marxist tradition. So so perhaps you could tell me why you think they're important.
2: Well, having a positive vision of the future is just, uh, you know, that's really the most important thing, I think, for politics in some way. There's a reason why the movements of the past were called socialist and communist, right? Not anti-capitalist. It's because they they were named after their idea of what the world is that they were trying to build. And I think that that's really important, not just To have a sense of where you're going, though I think that is incredibly important, but also because the work of politics involves a a lot of uh, very hard work and sacrifices. It involves people um, finding ways to kind of um, bridge their differences and, and work together in spite of the fact that they might benefit very unequally from the work that they're doing. Uh, And and in order to do all of that work and build those connections with people, I think it's very hard to imagine that happening without a shared vision of a better life, at least for one's children or for some future generations, if not for oneself. So I, I, I think that one of the things that really damaged the socialist or communist project in the 20th century was the fact that it, it seemed really hard to actually do that thing. And, and the failure of Soviet planning, the failure of even Keynesian style, you know, the version of Keynesianism that the 20th century saw, uh, demand management to deliver the goods, all of those things were very damaging and pushed us back into a kind of uh, market fundamentalist world, which has made things significantly worse for people. But I think that what we're seeing today, what gives me a lot of hope, is that we're seeing a reemergence emergence where new interest... I mean, there've always been utopians and crazy people, you know, kind of looking for a better world. But what we're seeing in the form of things like fully automated luxury communism and the Green New Deal and, and proposals like UBI is an interest, a kind of attempt to win back the future for the left and for the kind of emancipatory project. And I think that that will be really important. And so for me... I want to intervene around those questions and try to, you know, do my part as best I can to contribute to the project of creating a robust positive vision for the future, for the emancip- emancipatory project.
1: Yeah, I mean, so you use the, the these accounts of, these historical accounts of utopia, you refer to the Thomas More one, of course. Um, you don't mention, I, I think, the the Francis Bacon New Atlantis, which in some ways is, is the, the predecessor to my mind for a lot of the kind of contemporary tech utopians, which is it has it at its center like this question of of like who's actually in control whether it's the uh the the formal political system on the island of New atlantis or whether it's kind of these 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 proto scientists who have their tower full of technology through which they can you know create this society of abundance but anyway uh we should talk about um the uh, the, the 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 sketch that you lay out which is which pivots on like a, a, again a very ancient distinction. Um, between necessity and freedom. Um, it's a distinction that, that uh, has its origins in Aristotle, but is taken up, of course, by Marx as well. You tell us a little bit about that.
2: It's interesting you mentioned Bacon, because in my mind, there's sort of three utopian traditions that one could draw from. And, and in my view, one of them is correct, and the other two are kind of false paths. Um, one utopian tradition is, as you mentioned, the kind of bacon automation tradition. We, we talked about that a little bit at the beginning, right? There's people like uh, Babbage and Yuri and also um, Etzler who kind of are influencing Marx, um, or at least in the milieu in which he's developing his ideas. They seem to suggest the possibility of just overcoming drudgery, no need for planning, we'll live in a world of abundance that'll be given to us by technology. The other false path on the other side of that, in my view, is the kind of Fourier, uh, William Morris perspective. And I love Morris, and I think a lot of people do. But I think it's important to see that for Morris, like Fourier, there's the idea that work can become play. So we can kind of end the, we can overcome the edict of Eden, the eviction from the land of promise, um, the existence of drudgery by transforming work so that it, it, it's not work anymore, right? It's all play. And there's something to me kind of analogous, even though it's opposite between the automation perspective and the all work is play perspective, because they mean that the difficult problem of organizing the work that has to be done, coordinating and planning it is something that we can avoid somehow, right? Um, we can just enter a kind of seamless world of pleasure. And in between those two perspectives, to me, is the kind of Thomas More tradition, which takes the Aristotelian distinction between freedom and necessity, where freedom is for the free men and uh, necessity is for the slaves. And it translates it into a kind of internal division within humanity. It makes it a universalizable perspective that says, yes, there's time for necessity and obligation. There's work that we all have to do, but we do this work so that we all can be free. And I think that there's a, there's a kind of line that takes us from Thomas More through this guy Etienne Cabet, who, who came up with the term communism, through Marx, and then down the line of thinkers who've maintained that um, neither automation nor free play will be able to do this work. We have to actually organize work in order to be free together. And you know, just to say, the important thing about that is, it means that we actually need to think about these questions of coordination and planning, and we have to think about we have to return to the twentieth century's uh, socialist calculation debate and find new answers to those
1: questions. I, I think the thing that's so striking, because I agree, I think you know Moore's utopia is you know is effectively the utopia of social relations rather than technology, and therefore um, you know it, it seems to me to, to get more closely at the difficult questions, or the, the 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 kind of actually in more, although that you know there, there is a form of government that you know you can't supersede politics in the same way that, that you do in Bacon, that you do actually to a very large degree in Fourier. Um, so so it seems to me that the, the politics actually and, and politics perhaps a very transformed politics is still going to be something that exists. Uh, you know, <laughs> post revolution. Uh, as he says, uh, laughingly, um, "I guess like one of the the objections that's made to this tradition, and it's something that that's there in in your account, is the is is a question about human nature, uh, and and it's you know I, I tend to veer away from these questions because you know there are so many presuppositions involved that 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 sometimes it's it's just not worth touching them, but you know I mean I think there are things that are worth thinking about here, which are to do with not only kind of bad passions, so you know." Those those, those you know, emotions to which we are all subject, um, but but also the you know the the need, which doesn't seem to me to be a purely contingent capitalist need, uh, for you know to excel or to challenge oneself or to compete uh, and so on and so on. And I don't know whether it's a question of you know revolution in social relations about what that means. Um, but it seems to me that these are questions that we have, you know, as a movement, not felt like touching because they're, you know, something that will be sorted out later. But it does seem to me that, that, that there are some powerful things to examine there, and that they, they seem pretty essential. I mean, I, I'm often, you know, I often find myself think, you know, when I think about these things, uh, I find myself looping back to um, the this, this sort of Adornian account of, of the way in which sort of you know technology uh, is very much not neutral and 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 both in codes but affects the way in which we see and interact with and think about the world uh, to act on it i suppose my question in in some ways you know uh, is that i see the account uh, that you make and i see that for instance climate change uh, is there as a sort of specter in the book, um, not directly kind of dealt with, partly because it would be vast. Um, but I wonder if you have a sense of how those issues play into uh, the way we should be thinking about these futures.
2: That's another really great question, um, about which I I'll also spend a lot of time thinking. I guess that the thing to me is that the left has often taken this view that the primary conflict in our age is the class conflict. And once class society is overcome, humanity will be relatively more like a community, right? It'll be like the return of the community. And I think that that idea served thinkers like Thomas More quite well, also because he lived in a world where there were probably about 20 jobs to be done, right? Like you could just enumerate them all. And they were all very... um, close to the final, you know, consumer in a way. So it was easy to regulate them, as they say, in natura, just like looking at the stuff that has to be done and then organizing to do it and using the kind of bonds of community and solidarity to work that out. I think that during especially the period of the second industrial revolution, the late 19th century, and early 20th century, when you had chemicals and steel and electricity and, you know, all of these kinds of inventions that are quite a lot more engineering skill, we just entered a world of a much more complex economy in which the idea that the human community could just sort of, without conflict, sort of figure out how to do things together, um, that turned out to be, that's just totally wrong. It's not enough to to rely on the community. And of course, in the 19th and 20th centuries, we also just saw that there are all kinds of conflicts, whether they are around, you know, Uh, Whether they're conflicts between communities, whether they're kind of stoked by capitalism, like nationalist, racist, um, gender based, et cetera, kind of conflicts that just mean that, you know, humanity just isn't likely to be so. So um, community oriented in that kind of easy and simple way in the future. So the complexity of the tasks to be done and the fact that human beings will still have a lot of strife and conflict, even if they don't live in a class society, means that you actually need to think about that is to say people do have bad passions. People are aggressive toward one another, right? Um, And they can't just rely on good fellow feeling as a way to do things. I don't think that's a problem for the left perspective. I think facing those things is very important. But I think it just means that we actually need to have an institutional account. We need to say yes politics is not going to disappear. In fact, there's going to be a lot of space for conflict and disagreement, right? In a post-capitalist world. It means that, you know, we're going to have to find ways to organize um, production, which is incredibly complex in ways that, you know, where people feel like it's rational and are actually like finding ways either to work together or with rivalry and so on. All of that stuff that you said has to find a place in this vision, one thing I really do want to say, though, is I think the problem with the Fourierist perspective is that it tends to think that, like, we can solve all of these problems within the realm of work itself, Whereas in my view, the point would be that uh, the realm of work, necessity, and so on will always be much more thickly constrained because it's complex and we're doing things for a lot of people to make them all free. But the realm of freedom would then be a realm not just of rest and relaxation, but precisely of experimentation, games, rivalry, and all of these kinds of, um, maybe I have a kind of Freudian, Nietzschean sort of thing lurking in my mind somewhere, right? Where it's sort of like, the sublimation of these bad passions is creativity in a way. And that's what, um, there has to be a lot of space for. So that's maybe, you know, a little introduction to some of the things I'm going to be writing about, uh, in the next year, because I'm really trying to tackle this problem head on.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess like just one, one dimension of that that I think is, is probably like just important to, to, to note because it's something that does play into the, the kind of automation theorists who have often in the past be, been associated with, uh, uh, a love of speed, um, you know, the the desire for, for things ever, you know, to, to, to accelerate ever faster, and I thought I, one of the things that's very striking about about your sketch is is to do with you know the importance of slowness actually, uh, and the the important you know the the importance that, that there is a logic, you know, that, that not exceeding to the logic of development, um, it, you know, is 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 a capacity that we have. Um, and so I think slowness is quite an important part of your account. And actually, it's something that I had forgotten that I valued. So thank you for that.
2: Yes, um, I agree with that.
1: My last question for you, though, is on agency. And it's to do with your postscript. And it's something that I think, again, has has recurred through the projects that you've been involved in over the past decade or so. Um, and it's, you know, it's probably the most provocative for an orthodox left-wing Reader, it's probably the most provocative part of your book is the postscript on agency, which just kind of raises the question um, about you know. So we're looking, we live in the aftermath of a historic defeat of the labour movement, right? I mean that that is that is the story of the past few decades, um, but but also the nature of of people's self conception and the nature of how they act um, and how they think of themselves as. A collective has changed as well, so I, I wonder if we we can close with that question: Is like, um, where is the proletariat? Right. Well, I <laughs> guess you
2: know, <laughs> I I used to um, refer often to the to the moment in Volume One of Capital where Marx introduces the uh, the proletariat, and there's this little footnote in Chapter Twenty Five where he where he sort of redefines it. Um, he says at first. The, the accumulation of capital is the multiplication of the proletariat. And then in a footnote, he says, and of course, the proletariat is the one who's sort of drawn into work and then is thrown out on the street when he's no longer needed. And for me, you know, obviously, um, my story here about a vision of a post-capitalist world, Which is one in which um, we take the work we need to do like on collectively and we also transform it to be more um, cooperative and enjoyable and and also to open up a space of freedom for everyone to live and, you know, make a life for themselves and find meaning outside of work. For me, this does map onto in in a certain kind of way when I have to be careful about how one does it. Um, contemporary divisions within the proletariat today, I think there still are people, this is a question of what the Italian theorists called uh, the autonomia or the operismo theorists called class composition, right? And we have to think about how the class is being, as it were, kind of decomposed in some way with the end of the labor movement into these various sections. And what I'm trying to say is that for some workers, it remains the case that they find a kind of meaning in their work and they think about the overcoming or transformation of their situation in the most radical moments of their experience as uh, pointing in the direction of workers' autonomy and running these kind of, doing their jobs without Uh, the intervention of capital and value and so on. So when you think about education and healthcare, uh, teachers and nurses have this kind of relationship to their jobs where maybe they think, you know, I'm doing something really important And it would be much better if we had uh, autonomy and control over our work process and more resources. We could do the job right. For many other workers, they're only working to survive. And they, they don't think that the job they're doing would be made better in a different world, right? It's just a horrible job. Like. Um, obviously, a lot of platform work uh, could just disappear, right, in a, in a different world, uh, a world where we had really good public transportation instead of having all of these people driving taxis all over the place. So um, I think that that division is really important. And it and it does also reflect on struggles that we see where oftentimes workers who are more secure in their employment... Um, they are doing jobs that are in various ways have more of a, a, a purpose and an intrinsic value to them. They are being outweighed in struggles by masses of people who don't have that experience in relationship to work. And I guess what I'm saying is that like part of why we need a vision is we need an account of the overcoming of our society that appeals to both sides of the story. Um, I don't think that the proletariat, you know, the idea that of the past, that the industrial worker is a sort of rational worker pointing towards the future. It's not that industrial workers don't have an important part to play in struggles today. It's just that they represent a minority figure within the kind of, um, yeah, the kind of larger composition of the workforce. So, you know, yes, it's just a postscript to the book. And we're still working on this issue in the Endnotes Collective. And I think in a way for me, um, I've always been better at thinking about these kind of questions together with other people rather than just writing as my own individual self. So um, there's obviously a lot to be said about this. And I think one thing that we should note is that the past few years have seen an incredible uptick in uprisings all around the world. In 2019, was it's hard to remember this now? Just a, a year of incredible global unrest, and people thought the coronavirus uh, crisis would bring that to an end. But in in some places, at least in the U.S. and in a few other places around the world, we've seen you know more explosions happening in the in the Corona era. So I don't think that is going to change. I think looking forward we're going to see more of these big social movements. And the question is going to be, how are we going to be part of those movements? How are we going to um, to bring or try to do our part to provide those movements with a, a transformative vision of what we have to do to get out of the mess that we find ourselves in and how to get to the kind of post-scarcity world or future that uh, the automation theorists are suggesting, but which we cannot get to without a larger social struggle.
0: independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.